This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Welcome to Wheelchair Practice Forum for Open Pediatrics. I'm Robert Tasker, Professor of Anesthesiology and Professor of Neurology at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. Today I'm joined by Dr. Mark Peters, who is from London. He's at the Institute of Child Health, University College London, as reader in pediatric intensive care medicine. And he is one of the senior pediatric intensivists at Great Ormond Street Hospital for Children. Today we're going to talk about hemodynamic support in the treatment of septic shock in children. And recently uh, there has been an update to the surviving sepsis campaign uh, material. And what I'd like to ask Mark to begin with is what he thinks the highlights are for hemodynamic support for children. Okay, well, um, we're lucky we have um, very clear guidance from um, the Surviving Sepsis campaign that essentially restates the hemodynamic support guidelines from a couple of years earlier. And within that, there's a number of um, issues that we can focus on. I think first is the rate and type of fluid administration. Next is the um, choice and route of iontrope or vasopressor administration. Then there's the perennial question of um, steroids or not in septic shock. And perhaps the final piece to consider is what about that rather contradictory data, apparently, um, about fluid administration in um, early sepsis in Africa. So perhaps we could start with fluids and you could talk us through that. Yes, well, for most of this talk, I think we will follow the um, uh, algorithm that's um, sort of restated in these surviving sepsis um, 2012 guidance, which, which comes from the ACCM um, uh, guidance from 2009, and, it, and you can see it on the slide here. Um, and one of the, the really valuable bits of this guideline, I think, is the, um, is the fact that we're put under a significant amount of time pressure. If you look on the left-hand side of this panel, there's a, a clock um, by which time you are expected to have achieved a number of the um, steps that are shown. So in the first minute or so after arrival of your um, patient and recognition that they're um, a potential septic shock case, clearly you have to be addressing your airway breathing circulation and, and starting the um, uh, face mask oxygen, <coughs> and if, it's, if possible, to establish intravenous access, and if that's not possible, to establish um, interosseous access. Um, so assuming that's, that's happened and that's been uneventful, um, the next decision you're faced with is um, how much fluid, resuscitation fluid, to give and how quickly. And the recommendation contained in the guideline is to be very aggressive with the fluid resuscitation. Um, We're required or recommended to give 20 mils per kilo um, per aliquot and um, to administer that um, three, up to three times in the first 15 minutes of the resuscitation. And I think we have to be, um, we have to be honest, so that's a really challenging task that's been set to us. Um, and it almost certainly can't be done through a single IV. 
and it almost certainly can't be done without um, a number of staff ready to prepare um, and administer the fluid. Um, a couple of um, caveats to that is that if there is sign, if there are signs of obvious fluid overload with crackles in the chest or rapidly developing um, hepatomegaly, we're, we're, we're encouraged to stop fluid administration at that point. With such a demanding um, standard for fluid resuscitation being set, um, we obviously have to ask ourselves, you know, what's the justification for, for being quite so aggressive? And um, uh, the truth is the data is, um, is not as complete as mm. um, one might hope, but there is really very robust observational data to make an association between the rate of fluid administration, early in resuscitation and subsequent outcome. And here I'm just showing um, one of the more recent um, observational studies from the San Paulo group um, in Brazil. And what you can see on the slide is the volume of ad administered fluid in the first hour, so, so um, a little more conservative than the recommendations in the guidance. Um, volume of fluid in the first hour cut into three um, groups, either relatively low volume, less than 20 mls kilo, a moderate volume, or um, a high volume of more than 40 uh, mls of kilo. And there is a clear um, difference um, and significant difference in the um, uh, observed survival, um, the ICU survival arising out of that. And one of the observations that um, the group make that adds validity to, to that is when they case mix adjust according to presentation paediatric index of mortality scores. Um, the standardised mortality ratio for those getting more than 40 mls per kilo was around a third um, and those in the low and medium group was um, as expected as SMR approximated one. Uh, this is an example that has been replicated in, in several observational studies and the numbers almost identical on each occasion. Is this a recommendation that you would use for all forms of septic shock? So for example, dengue, meningococcal, staphylococcal toxic shock, um, the list goes on. So I, the recommendations are made independent of the cause of the septic shock. Um, and I think that's reasonable and appropriate because um, we've discussed there's a real serious time pressure to, to get on with this resuscitation and clearly many of those diagnoses are only available subsequently. So um, the scale of the impact is such that, um, yes, we, we recommend getting on with your aggressive fluid resuscitation in the absence of the signs that suggest you should limit it, um, regardless of the cause of the shock. Thank you. Perhaps I could then ask our audience, what forms of septic shock do you see in your uh, unit and country? And uh, are your fluid uh, resuscitation guidelines the same as those that we've discussed? Before we talk about the choice of fluid, I would just like to make the point it's the, it's the volume that we know, or we suspect, um, improves outcome. Um, and we know, make no specific recommendation about the choice um, of fluid. Having said that, there are some data that perhaps can guide us, and um, I think the obvious place to start is the SAFE study, the comparison of albumin and saline um, fluid resuscitation. This is in adults in, from the ANZICS group and it's a, it's a spectacular piece of work. It um, studies nearly 7,000 um, adults and they're randomised to always albumin or always saline for volume expansion during their intensive care stay. And superficially, as you can see here on the survival curves, there's no difference at all between the two groups. Um, if you um, look at their subsequent 
um, analysis of uh, so the subgroups, and these are proper subgroups, they were defined before the study, they're um, few in number and they have large numbers of patients in each group, there is a clear survival advantage with albumin ahead of saline. And that persists after you make adjustments for all of the um, uh, comorbidities um, and acute physiological severity. So, so if time permits and it's readily available, we use albumin. Um, but typically saline is available much more quickly. So I think um, you have to trade off those two issues. In practical terms, nearly everyone gives saline first and I have no problem with that. The next area then that we ought to look at in the algorithm is what inotrope or vasopressor should you be using? Yes, um, we didn't mention that um, during this, this frantic um, first 15 minutes of resuscitation we're also recommended to um, cite a further intravenous line and start a, um, an inotrope. Um, and at this point there's not um, a, a strong steer as to which choice of inotrope um, or vasopressor it should be. So I think the, the choice that um, uh, we make has to depend on our understanding of the likely physiology at the time. And um, I offer this um, paper as a, as a some guide towards this. This is work done by um, Joe Briley in our unit some um, four or five years ago. And this is a, an attempt to characterise the haemodynamic patterns on admission to the ICU. Um, so these patients have either come from the ward, being um, typically immune deficient patients with, or with central lines or some, some extra risk factor for having, acquiring sepsis, or they are community acquired um, uh, sepsis. And both patterns, um, the point at which they were studied for their hemodynamics was admission to the ICU. Um, and what this plot shows is the cardiac index on the um, x-axis and a measure of how vasoconstricted or vasodilated they are on, on the y-axis. And we're showing that um, the normal range adjusted for body surface area, the cardiac index, um, sits in the middle. Um, and um, interestingly, there is almost every value of cardiac index represented um, by this group of children. And what's also interesting is that there is similarly a, wide, a very wide range of um, vasoconstrictor state from those that are extremely um, tightly constricted to widely dilated. So, so we are observing both warm shock, high cardiac output, vasodilated, um, and cold shock, um, uh, low cardiac output, vasoconstricted. Um, one stage deeper into this analysis is the observation that actually these two states, warm and cold shock, are not equally distributed amongst by the cause of the shock. So the patients who um, had come from the wards in the hospital, typically with central venous catheter in infections, overall were presenting in a pattern of warm shock, whereas those who perhaps had a longer lead time um, with a community-acquired shock, taken longer to get to us, were typically um, lower cardiac output vasoconstricted. And so the challenge this presents for us if we're recommending starting an inotrope early is we would like to, to improve both these sets of hemodynamics and not, for example, vasoconstrict patients who um, uh, have low cardiac output and high um, SVR already. Um, and similarly, we wouldn't like to vasodilate those who have um, warm shock. So the standard practice is to use something that kind of covers both bases um, in most situations. And uh, dopamine or low dose 
epinephrine um, are uh, probably a, a suitable choice in both scenarios. Having said that, um, uh, there's always been a concern about whether it's safe to give norepinephrine nor um, via a peripheral line, but clearly the hemodynamics um, suggest that in those in warm shock or, or central venous catheter-associated infection, that might be the more appropriate agent. And I, I just um, I highlight this paper from uh, Francis Leclerc's group that has uh, counted back over um, a large number of children um, administered noradrenaline in septic shock. And I think it's reassuring that um, a significant proportion of the children given noradrenaline were given it through a, a peripheral line without recorded complications. It's also notable that the doses required, the maximum doses recorded, were really quite quite impressive, and they're up at two and a half micrograms per kilogram per minute, so um, generous administration. So, um, so the recommendation is to start inotrope early. The factors you perhaps consider in the choice of inotrope um, are what the apparent hemodynamics are. If you're unable to measure hemodynamics early, then it seems sensible to use a drug that's not going to um, make one of the situations worse um, and one of them better and use something in the middle and dopamine and low dose adrenaline uh, seem logical choices in that situation for me. And the guidelines leave us with that choice? They do at that stage. I think further down where, where we're getting to the point where um, we want to classify patients into warm shock and cold shock then I think we have to do some more detailed examination um, and hemodynamic assessment. Thank you Mark. Perhaps then we can return to our audience and ask you in your individual units what choice of inotrope and vasopressor uh, do you use in your unit and what is the route of administration? Is it peripheral venous or central venous? So Mark, that now uh, brings us to the question of steroids and what do the guidelines tell us what we should do? And what do you do? Okay. So, um, so we now should be about an hour into our resuscitation. We've given a generous amount of fluid. We're on one and maybe a second line inotropal vasopressor. And the guidance from um, surviving sepsis and from the ACCM um, document is that um, that's the point at which um, steroid administration should be considered. Um, and um, I think that's entirely reasonable. The question is, can you define better patients who are um, at risk of adrenal insufficiency? Um, my view is that there's little or no point in measuring um, cortisol levels um, or even doing a stimulated um, cortisol level, not least because of the time involved in the process, but also I genuinely don't think we know how to interpret those values. So I think the logical um, approach is to take a sort of functional um, uh, consideration. You know, has the shock reversed despite inotrope? Presuming that's administered correctly, um, uh, if, if they are still in shock, you know, catecholamine-resistant shock, then it seems appropriate to give physiological steroid replacement at that point. Um, the issues behind this are that despite years of trying, no one has convincingly demonstrated um, a gain from steroid administration 
in septic shock with a variety of different um, regiments. Um, but actually, if you dig a little deeper into those data, all of the studies, I believe, show that shock reversal is improved with early steroid administration. Those studies are predominantly adults, and the reason, on the whole, they don't show a benefit um, is that that early gain in shock reversal is traded off against an increased risk of nosocomial infection. Um, and my view is that the, the length of stay for a child after an episode of septic shock on the ICU when they're at greatest risk of nosocomial infection is significantly shorter. So um, they have potentially more to gain if they're in a catecholamine-resistant shock um, and less to lose. So we give, as per the guidelines, we give steroids at that point. So you do give steroids? We do if you're catecholamine resistant and fluid resistant, yes. Okay, and you give it in physiologic doses. Yes. So can I return to our audience now? Do you use steroids uh, at this point on your unit and what doses are you using? So the next area is goal-directed yes. therapy. What does uh, the guideline tell us about goal-directed therapy? And are these the goals that you use in your own practice? Okay. Um, so the guideline, um, immediately following the choice to start steroids, um, encourages us to monitor central venous pressure and also central venous or, or um, right atrial um, oxygen saturation as an, as an approximation of a mixed venous saturation. And I'm, I'm sure the audience appreciate that, that the thinking behind that is that um, that is a measure of the global adequacy of oxygen delivery. Um, but um, I think it's at this point in the guideline because clearly attaining central venous access in a septic child um, is a significant um, intervention. It takes some time and um, unless they happen to be a child who has an existing central line. Um, the basis for making that recommendation is essentially um, two studies. And the first is a very famous study that's already um, 12 years old um, from Detroit, from Emmanuel Rivers. Um, and he basically showed um, the advantage, and this what appears a complex algorithm, but actually on closer examination it is um, on the control side, resuscitation to standard vital signs and arterial pressure standard a central venous pressure standard in urine output. Um, to on the other side, all of those plus continuing resuscitation until the, the um, central venous saturation um, goes above 70%. Um, and the reason we're still talking about this study 12 years later is that it had a very dramatic effect on outcome. That it, it cut sepsis mortality from um, what's admittedly a high rate in their group of, of um, 46 percent down to 30 percent and that was highly significant and it's still the largest effect um, of any sepsis study published to date. I should say perhaps that this study has been criticized in that um, uh, the chief investigator was often involved in the intervention arm of the resuscitation and less so in the um, control arm. I don't think that invalidates the study in any way I think it reinforces that expert resuscitation is better than less expert resuscitation. So, there, so we are perhaps underestimating the impact of, of really super care in those first few hours. 
So what are your recommendations when you're speaking to referring uh, paediatricians and are you always able to get mixed venous saturation at such an early time? Uh, this is a crucial question and actually um, I think uh, a recent study by the EM ShockNet group um, which was a non-inferiority study of comparing a different goal in resuscitation. And, um, on this occasion it was clearance of um, serum lactate, so correction of lactate. Um, and they showed that was equivalent to targeting a central venous saturation. And clearly a lactate estimation at the bedside is a very much easier prospect than the central venous um, catheter uh, placement and um, superior cable vein oxygen assessment. So um, the magic of this seems to be in the process of resuscitation check, resuscitation check. So our recommendation is to use a central venous sat if it is available, but if not, to continue resuscitation until lactate clearance is achieved. Thank you. So perhaps we can again uh, address this question uh, in each of our own units. Uh, what goal do you target? Do you, are you able to get mixed venous saturation uh, or do you rely more on lactate? So Mark, that brings us to the final piece, uh, which is um, probably uh, the most discussed yes. aspect. And what I'd like uh, is sort of your comments on the FEAST study and how that relates to your practice yes. in London and what would be your recommendations to our audience around the world about how to use these data? Okay. I didn't think I was going to go away without um, uh, discussing the, the FEAST study. Um, I'm sure the audience are aware, but perhaps we should just recap the main findings. I think this is a fantastic piece of work from um, Kath Maitland and the Imperial um, Group um, uh, led from uh, Khalifa in Africa. Um, and what this study in um, a number of sites in East Africa um, showed was that um, using a very pragmatic um, inclusion criteria of children who were clearly sick, who had um, a combination of either impaired consciousness or respiratory distress and poor perfusion, they were randomised to one of three groups. Either they were given almond administration, 20 mls per kilo, or they were given saline administration in the same volume, or there was a control group that was given no volume expansion in the resuscitation phase. Um, the main outcome measure was mortality at um, 48 hours, and um, I think many people were surprised by the results, um, which indicated that the control group was by far the best outcome of um, these three. Um, at, so the control group mortality was approximately 7%, um, and both the almond and saline groups exhibited a mortality of um, just over 10%. Um, and that's clearly in apparent contradiction to what we've been recommending about um, shock resuscitation. And especially if you look deeper into the study, um, there's a lot of very detailed information about the 3,000 children who are included in this um, that indicates that there was no one subgroup um, in which fluid resuscitation was beneficial. And that's really remarkable because there were subgroups defined by many of the things that we use as prompts to fluid resuscitation, so base deficit or lactate concentration. So that's really striking. Um, and the challenge for us is to explain how um, the improving outcome in um, uh, our environments that we've seen with an algorithm that includes aggressive fluid resuscitation to reconcile that with 
um, a very clear signal that the opposite is seen in, in a different environment. And um, the honest answer about this is we don't know. Um, but um, my thoughts include that um, the process of getting into hospital and being assessed um, in Africa doesn't resemble either your practice or my practice. And I wonder if these children have, to some extent, already gone, a, gone through a process of adaptation to their um, shock state. And hence they are, um, they're, they're in a group that is doing relatively well, because the control group has a 7% mortality, and, and that's, that's better than equivalent shock presentations have coming through our um, emergency rooms and ICUs. So the implication is that um, these children are on, a, on predominantly a survival path, and they're then treated in a way which increases um, uh, their option delivery, perhaps they reperfuse um, uh, very constricted beds, perhaps they get a um, ischemia reperfusion injury as part of that, perhaps they get a worsening of the acidosis of the chloride load. There's a number of things that were suddenly changing, um, and those are not apparent to us. And the harm that those can engender is not apparent to us in a Western um, environment, where they're compensated by other interventions, so oxygen administration, CPAP, intubation, inotrope administration. So my view is this is highly relevant for people who work in this environment. Its relevance in our um, environment is much less clear. And I would feel very uncomfortable with us abandoning what has been a successful strategy to date on the basis of these data. I absolutely think it needs further investigation and we'd love to do so, but um, I think the differences in the inclusion criteria from uh, East Africa to London or to Boston are sufficient that um, I, I'm not yet changing my practice. So we asked uh, a question of our audience earlier on about the patterns and type of septic shock that they were seeing, dengue, meningococcal, malaria, uh, central venous line related septic shock, uh, all these different forms. Are you then in fact going against the guidelines and saying that we have to have different guidelines for each different form? Um, I'm saying that um, the guidelines require us to be able to deliver many steps, including inotrope administration, artificial mechanical ventilation, a whole series of things that, weren't available, that aren't available in every environment. And I think um, they are relevant for the environment that produced those guidelines. I think this is fabulous data which assists in an environment where those interventions are not necessarily available. Thank you. That um, brings us to a close for uh, today's uh, Open Pediatrics World Share Practice. Uh, I'd like to thank Dr. Mark Peters uh, from London, who has uh, provided us with expert advice and insight into the new sepsis guidelines. And I'd like to thank the audience who have contributed uh, with their questions and comments and we will uh, have Dr. Peters address those at a later point. Goodbye. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide.
For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org. 